0: Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices, about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are, again, sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review and sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delargy, and I can announce that I have finally managed to adapt To these socially distant times and can now interview people for the show safely in person the solution to this very 2020 problem was simplicity itself i bought a four meter mic cable and a long stand don't know why i didn't think of that before if you happen to be listening to the podcast radio hour on bbc radio 4 extra a couple of weeks ago you may have heard me on the show very briefly it's only a very short appearance i was talking about how lockdown had affected the making of the show And i explained how i was planning to interview one of the guests for this episode in a socially distant way very long story short i was going to talk to her on the phone because she doesn't have access to skype or whatsapp or any of those things but the incredibly clever part was i was going to post her a cassette recorder and she was going to record her end of the conversation onto a good old-fashioned cassette tape and post it back to me as it turned out though when i did some test recordings the quality was so terrible that I considered postponing the whole thing until such time as the world becomes virus-free. But my guest heroically suggested that it might be possible to meet in person at her house if we were extremely careful and stayed metres apart. So bringing along my new extra-long mic cable and stand, that's exactly what we did. So this is the first episode in a three-part special on Soho Bites, all about the famous Windmill Theatre, the sad ghost of which still stands on Great Windmill Street. The heroic guest I mentioned is Jill Millard Shapiro, who was one of the Windmill Girls in the late 50s and early 60s. Via that long mic cable, I had a long conversation with Jill at her lovely house out in Chingford about the history of the Windmill Theatre and about her time there. And I'll be playing that conversation out over the next three episodes. The first of those in a couple of minutes is about the early days of the Windmill and the Second World War. Each episode will also, of course, contain a conversation about a Soho based film And for this special three-part series they're all films about the windmill theater two episodes from now podcaster adam roach makes a return visit to the show to talk about an american film set at the windmill 1945's tonight and every night starring Rita hayworth and in the next episode i'll be joined by dr ellen wright of de montford university to talk about 1949's murder at the windmill which stars a very young john pertwee but the film chat for this episode is about a much more recent film from 2005 It's Mrs. Henderson Presents. Stick around to the second half of the programme to hear my conversation with actor, Sohoite and film aficionado, Mike Warburton. Even 56 years after it closed, the Windmill Theatre and its long-running show, Review-Deville, still holds a particular place in the British public imagination. Famous for bringing nudity to the 1930s London stage in the form of motionless tableau vivants, and for staying open throughout the Blitz as the bombs rained down, it was a unique institution that came to exemplify a certain type of mid-20th century saucy British pluck. We never closed became the windmill slogan, changed by certain wags to we never clothed. And the Revue de Ville, a combination of Revue and Vaudeville, ran almost uninterrupted for 32 years, with a new version of the show being launched every couple of months throughout that time. The people who began it all became household names and the windmill girls themselves, the wholesome, all-singing, all-dancing, sometimes-nude young women who formed the backbone of the onstage company, became a national institution. I was delighted to bag an interview with one of those windmill girls. Jill Millard Shapiro spent nearly five years of her life at The Mill, as we in The Know call it, and has become passionate about keeping the memory of the place alive. A couple of weeks ago, I put on my face covering, packed my recording kit onto my back, and took my first trip on public transport since the lockdown began, and headed out into Essex to meet Jill. After I'd washed my hands and coiled out my extra-long mic cable, I asked her to start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start, and explain how it all began.
1: Mrs Henderson, Laura Henderson, a very, very, very rich widow and an extremely eccentric English woman, (laughs) bought a little cinema in Great Windmill Street and she did convert it into a theatre and the first thing they showed was a play that wasn't very successful. Then she hired a manager. Called Vivian Van Damme, and uh, from that moment onwards, the world changed because they invented Revue de Ville and uh, introduced nudes to the London stage. Now, I think the only reason that she got away with it was because she was friends with the Lord Chamberlain, <laughs> right. and uh, he rather was. Uh, I don't know, persuaded by her I think. I don't think it was Van Dam's idea. I think it was his idea to do nudes, but her persuasion and her connections. She was extremely well connected. So I think that's how it started. That the only way to make a success of anything in those days then was to have some nudes. But they were static. They didn't move. They were at the back of a stage in dim lighting. There was nothing really sexy about it. It wasn't striptease, it. Tees, was it? No, like not it, at all, it? no. Yeah. no. I, I always say to people, no, it wasn't striptease. We were already naked when we went on.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we had nothing to take off. Yeah. So if you did the pose at the back of the stage, that's all it was. Posing as if you were a statue in a park. But in front of that would be a whole group of dancers, singers, a whole production number. The boys in the striped blazers and the straw hats and the girls in the pretty dresses. There was an awful lot going on in front of the pose. So it wasn't the only thing on the stage. Very pretty. Some of the tableaus were beautifully lit, let's put it that way. They were were lovely to see. But it wasn't the main thing. It probably was from the audience point of view.
0: Because who had
1: ever seen a nude on a London stage? Probably also the ideas came from Paris, I think, with Van Damme. I think it was all... Copying a little bit, but for London, this was really quite unusual, and it did take the Lord Chamberlain to agree to it.
0: So the idea of combining review and vaudeville into, yes. into this, review, yeah, this
1: the new the thing of
0: vaudeville—that was Van Damme's idea, was it? It was. Could you explain a little bit about how the routine, the daily routine, because it was six shows a week, wasn't it? No, six shows a day, six shows a day, yeah.
1: six days a week, six yeah. shows a day. By 1947, Van Damme devised two separate companies. So what you had was, a six say, a 6 weeks run of any one production. So the two separate companies, A and B, that was a good name, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it was very inventive. So company A would be on stage and company B would be in the rehearsal room rehearsing the show. The next day, it would reverse.
0: Right, so, so you didn't get a day off every second day. You were either no. on stage or you were rehearsing. Yes,
1: you were on stage okay. or you were rehearsing the next show performing the current show, rehearsing the next show.
0: A bit like then, a repertory company. <laughs> yeah, and then so when when the shows turned around, when the six week Review Deville do you call it a, a run or a, a run. A run. Yeah. So when the six week run finished, did the theatre go dark for two days or something like that? Oh no. So really just open the following night with a different show?
1: Yeah. Um well there'd be a dress rehearsal on the Sunday, um which was ticketed, so you'd have your mum and your auntie Maud and everybody would come and see that because we gave them the tickets. So that's when all the old ladies were in the audience. That was lovely. They (laughs) clapped and they laughed and they loved the comedians and they loved seeing their daughters and their granddaughters. (laughs) You wouldn't think, would you? But they did. So that was joyous. And then in the um, circle, up in the dress circle, was the camera club. They paid for the privilege of being able to photograph the dress rehearsal Um, And that money all went into our benevolent fund. And at the beginning of each year, a big cheque was given to whichever charity Van Damme chose.
0: Did Van Damme vet those pictures anyway, or did they use them however they wanted? No,
1: but they didn't publish them. They were for the camera club. So it was them practising using their cameras in theatre lighting, I suppose. But another key person was course Anne Mattel. without Anne Mattel, I don't know, and without computers, I don't know how she did it, the logistics.:
0: So she um, worked out who was working.: Who was when, doing where, what? And... Who was
1: doing Yes, getting everybody in the right place at the right time, doing all the- dealing with auditions and who wanted to be auditioned and when. You couldn't do six shows. You had to do have some time off to have some lunch, and to have a little break, put your feet up. You couldn't go from midday to 11 o'clock at night without yeah. a break. So you went on all the time. And if you had a pose, it was a relief because you didn't have to do the can-can. So if you were a bit tired towards the end of the day, (laughs) the pose was like, oh, good, I've got the pose.
0: In terms of who did what, the girls did... There weren't specific people who did the tableaus.
1: When it started, there were. There were specific girls who just did the nudity scenes. So they would just do the pose, literally not moving, that's it. The others were the singers and the dancers who performed in front of the the tableau but remember the tableaus were only in say two scenes in each show it okay. wasn't every scene
0: okay
1: so there were the windmill girls and there were this awful name the review de bells oh i've not heard that one Re- yes Re- de the review bells were okay. the nudes um, but by 1947 van damme discovered the review bells were good dancers good singers they'd just taken whatever job they could get but they could do it. They they were just as good as the windmill girls. Yeah, why
0: waste them to Yeah, why the waste call? them?
1: Yeah. So what he did, he created these two companies and he said that all you must all pose in the nude. So a couple of the girls left saying they didn't want to, fair enough. And some of the reviewed bells stepped forward and became quite well known.
0: <laughs> okay. Do you think the... I mean, it's famous now, this We Never Closed yes. thing. Which isn't actually... true, is it? Because they they were forced to close for a few days, I think.
1: That few days, yes. But during the Blitz. Yeah,
0: they just carried on going.
1: Yes, every other theatre went dark, but the windmill. He did talk to the girls. He did ask them, what do you think? We'll close if you feel unsafe. And I think to to a girl, they said, no, we'll do it.
0: That's what sealed it in the public imagination.
1: Absolutely. um... That slogan, we never closed. That was definitely. But they didn't. All through the London Blitzes. That theatre stayed open, but all the others were closed. It was the only theatre open.
0: It did take some damage, didn't it, during the Yes, place?
1: it did take a hit.
0: Um, yeah. cause, uh, we'll talk about Miss Henderson. You must have seen the film, I'm sure. You, oh, yes. Because you know. <laughs> in the film, somebody dies. She That's not quite true, In
1: it? real life, she didn't die, no. She she was very badly injured. And Van Damme paid for all the medical care that was possible for her. Joan Jay, her name was. Yeah. Um, and she did return to the theatre, but she was badly scarred, say from uh, just below the waist to halfway up her thigh. There was some very bad scarring. So all her costumes were, were adapted so that that wasn't visible. Right, OK. But yes, she, she was quite badly injured. Um, one of the stagehands... Uh, no, he was the lighting apprentice. I think he was 17 years old, and he's the brother of Joan Rock, a windmill girl. And her young brother was killed in that bombing.
0: In that same night? Yes. Right. Yeah. It's extraordinary to think that... Because we've got this pandemic on now. And, you know. And know. people are... You know,
1: oh, they're saying, yes. Oh, it's... Uh, the,
0: the in idea the that, war,
1: we did yeah, this. And, yeah.
0: The, the idea that you could wake up one morning, if you, if you actually went to bed, if you actually did wake up, hmm. and part of your city has just been destroyed, and it's yeah. other people... Yes. Doing it to you, dropping bombs yes. from the air. It's ex-
1: I was born in an air raid. <laughs> Were you? Yes.
0: <laughs> oh. You don't remember it, actually. mum, there. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you know, are you able to talk about this incident with the horses?
1: Yes, Margaret McGrath and uh, um, I don't know who the other girl was. can't remember. She was, um, was
0: one of the big stars wasn't she Margaret McGrath. Well,
1: she, she became well-known after, yes, because she married Michael Rennie. Right, went okay. sh- and Maggie went to Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She she was uh, one of the two girls that went and got the horses. They could hear them whinnying. They could hear them crying. The horses were making a terrible noise. The bomb had hit and the stables were on fire. So you could hear that from the, the windmill if you were around in the area. And so they went in and released, I think, six horses. They tried to hold <laughs> And they ended up going around Piccadilly Circus, so she called it her little rodeo.
0: <laughs> so there was basically six, six horses yes. and two windmill girls dressed two in windmill costumes? Two girls. No,
1: I don't <laughs> think okay, so. Okay, right. Um,
0: oh, that's a shame. In my yes. imagination, they were in, they were in full costumes. No, you know? <laughs> unfortunately.
1: Unfortunately, no. I think they were just in their ordinary clothes. But um, they did get the horses out of the stable, and they managed to get them, I think, to Bow Street Police Station because they couldn't find anywhere else to take their their horses. And the police phoned Vivian Van Damme and said, "We've got two of your windmill girls here." And he said, "Why? What have they done?" <laughs> <laughs> Instantly thought, "What have they been up to?" But that, I think their their wartime stories are incredible. It's something. that kind of
0: thing, isn't it? That's the, yes. that makes people um... yes. So Mrs. Henderson died before the end of the Second World War, didn't you? 1944. She? Yeah. Well, Would you mind talking a little about the film?
1: Well, so, Mrs. Henderson, the film.
0: Yeah.
1: See, I love it. Okay. <laughs> I, I love it because, I don't know if you know this, but you're actually looking at the Windmill Theatre and the Auditorium because the sets were recreated from the original plans.
0: So the view we have from the stage is the view you used to have? Yes. Okay. So With the, the little Windmill logo on the... Yeah, uh, right. but
1: the Auditorium... And the little boxes with the windmills on and the stage are exactly correct. Okay. They did recreate the dressing rooms, but they're slightly bigger than any of our dressing rooms were. But that feeling of going down the stairs, the corridors, the brickwork, it's all very, very true. Um, Bob Hoskins was superb as Van Damme. I forgot it wasn't him.
0: This is interesting because, I mean, you you didn't know Miss Henderson, but you did know Van Damme. Mm obviously much older when you knew Well, he was older,
1: and, but he was still very much in charge. Okay. You know, he didn't cross Van Damme. You, you, you know, you, he was treated with utter respect.
0: Right, OK. Because the film, it received mixed reviews. And I think people, people who didn't like it, they thought it was a bit you know, nostalgic and kitsch and that kind of thing. And I think mm-hmm. other people were a bit, thought it took liberties with the timeline and that kind of thing, which, well, I, don't, which it, I think is the fine. You could films
1: do that. Yeah, you have to. Yes, I mean, obviously, it started in the wrong bit. Yeah. It didn't start at the beginning and go through. Oh, the I film, liked film to it. Just, so I come. think it, get, it had the right feel. Okay. It felt like the windmill. It felt like the girls. It felt like the dressing rooms. Our biggest complaint of all, and I think all of us would agree on this one, is when the girls are too coy to take their clothes off and they're going to do a rehearsal and it's the first time and they have to slip their little robes off. This is all nonsense. The fact that the stage was full of stagehands, the auditorium had, yes, Van Damme in there. And the girls are saying, we won't do it unless you do, Van Damme. Get them off. Now, they. this was the 1930s. They would have been so grateful to have a job. They would never have spoken to him like that. And he would never... Ever in a million years have stripped off. Right. I don't think he ever took his suit off even to go to bed.
0: Or <laughs> have well, <I'm> a bath. <laughs> no.
1: no, Van Damme was a very serious man. Yeah. He would never have done that and to even allow the stagehands on the stage at the same time as the girls were supposedly going to practice being in the nude, never in a million years would that have happened. Van Damme was very very strict. You'd be wearing a little robe, little kimono thing or something like that. You'd climb up onto the pedestal and the stagehand with his eyes averted (laughs) would reach out a hand and you'd hand him your robe and he'd go off into the wings and disappear. When there was a nude on the stage in a pose, nobody was allowed in the wings. To even suggest that they might have been on the same stage when the girls were moving around with nothing on, trying to get on a pedestal and ridiculous... Van Dam would never, ever have allowed it. He was strict about how the girls were treated.
0: Thank you to Jill for coming on the show. She's a genuine part of cultural Soho and British history. In the next episode of Soho Bites, Jill talks about how she started out working at the Windmill and about some of the household names who also work there. You can see a picture of Jill being socially distant from me in her back garden on the show notes for this episode at sohobitespodcast.com. And you can also find details there of where to buy a copy of her magnificent coffee table book, Remembering Review DeVille. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions it's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bikes takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this one is for free and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate thank you very much apologies for the interruption and back to the episode When it comes to Mrs. Henderson Presents from 2005, we are deep in national treasure territory. It tells the story of the first decade or so in the life of one national treasure, the Windmill Theatre, and stars two more Judy Dench in the title role and Bob Hoskins, who also produced the film as Vivian Van Damme. <laughs> Director Stephen Frears, whose eclectic list of credits include Prick Up Your Ears and Florence Foster Jenkins, has definitely given us something closer to the second of these two films than the first. He takes a few liberties with the timeline and serves up this nostalgic tale with a generous dollop of artistic license, but it's largely a fairly accurate telling of the story of how Reveudable began and survived. As we heard from a real Windmill Girl earlier, the sense and spirit of the place are well captured, even if some of the events are imaginary. The film covers the period from Mr Henderson's funeral along a very compressed timeline all the way up to one night at the height of the Blitz, the night on which Mrs Henderson has managed to overturn the Lord Chancellor's decision to close the theatre on safety grounds. In real life, this is the point at which the windmill achieved its legendary status and was not long before Laura Henderson died. The relationship between Henderson and Van Damme is the central one in the film and is depicted as being tempestuous but affectionate. And generally, the only other relationships portrayed in the film are between Mrs. Henderson and other people. Henderson and the Lord Chancellor, played by Christopher Guest. Henderson and Lady Conway, played by Thelma Barlow. Henderson and Maureen, played by Kelly Riley. All of them are seen through the prism of Mrs. Henderson's presence in the room, as though we are members of her staff discreetly waiting in attendance. Apart from Mrs Henderson, Van Damme and the Lord Chamberlain, all of whom existed in real life, most of the other characters are either imagined or composites, and Will Young is surprisingly good as all the Windmill Boys rolled into one. With some big musical numbers by George Fenton, great performances across the board, and some lovely location work, Mrs Henderson Presents definitely found its audience upon release and a stage show based on the films quickly in production. But what does today's second guest think about it? I met up with actor Mike Warburton in the Soho Bite studio, otherwise known as the Churchyard of St. Anne's on Wardour Street, hence the background noise, to discuss Mrs. Henderson Presents. It was Mike's first time outside the house since lockdown began, and I feel honoured that he donned his mask and braved the tube to come and talk to Soho Bites. I knew he'd seen the film when it first came out and that he'd watched it again recently in preparation for coming on the show. What, I asked him, was his overall impression of the film? When it first came out, years ago, when I first
2: saw it, I wasn't that enamoured of it, but film's a really interesting thing. The mood you're in when you see a film, whatever's going on in your life, that day, that afternoon, morning, week, month, year, period in your life, chapter, whatever, so affects how you perceive that film, view it, enjoy it, don't enjoy it, whatever. And so I thought, you know, it's always interesting going back to a film, just to see whether, for instance, I I watched um, The Magnificent Ambersons again the other night, and I watched Citizen Kane the previous night. Now, with every viewing of Citizen Kane, I love it more and more and more irrespective of how much I love *Awesome worlds, it just stands up in its own right. Um, and I used to love The Magnificent Allisons, and I watched it again you know, a couple of nights ago, and I was really, really disappointed. Now, Mrs. Henderson presents, um, I wasn't keen on when I first saw it, but I'd kind of forgotten why, because it had been so long. So I watched it again last night, and um, it's even worse than... Um, oh, <laughs> than, uh... well, you
0: teased me then! <laughs> I thought you were going to say you loved it! No, um, no, I genuinely thought you were going to say, and now... I really like it because I'm missing Soho because of lockdown, and now you see Mr. Henderson. Oh, oh, that's a shame.
2: I even got sort of annoyed about the set that they had for the Windmill Theatre. Um, and this is silly, obviously, because you know, films are not documentaries, they're entertainment. You know. um, but even the, the, the set they had for the exterior of the Windmill Theatre is, is nothing like you know, the, the street itself, Great Windmill Street itself. Yeah. and It's kind of set on some bizarre sort of corner-curve thing. And even that started to annoy me, uh, which is really, I know, really pedantic. It's it's a lot of really interesting things, actually. First thing, I'm a massive fan of Bob Hoskins. He's one of my favourite actors and and, and really one of the best British film actors. British actors, period. You know, he did theatre, TV, he's wonderful in Frasier, all sorts of things. Um, So I'm a big, big fan of Bob Hoskins. But almost immediately watching Mrs Henderson presents last night, I was like, no, no. He's obviously got incredible charisma. You just want to watch him every second he's on, on the screen. But a posh accent doesn't suit Bob Hoskins. So that sort of got me slightly riled because it's like, but I'm a massive fan of Bob. I mean, in the end, he kind of convinces you, because he's so damn good and so charismatic. But the thing that got to me very quickly, and stayed with me, unfortunately, all the way through the film, was this bizarre stylisation uh, that Stephen Frears went for. I mean, I can hear the pitch, I can hear the pre-production meetings, and I can understand why it was made and
0: why everyone was very excited about it, but it ends up being neither a musical nor a film. And Bob Hoskins has got a producer credit on it. I don't know how... I mean, I think it's partly his baby, isn't it? It's not like he's just chucked his name on there.
2: No, 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 I think, yeah.
0: Oh. And it's written by Martin Sherman, who wrote Bent, and that's a, that's a strong pedigree. Absolutely. And also based on the book by Sheila Van Damme, who was Vivian Van Damme's daughter. I mean, all this, and Judy Denton's in it. Um, Christopher Guest. Christopher I mean. Guest, which I think... I'm going to try and find some positives. Yeah. I mean, my my take on it is I quite... Enjoyed it to a certain extent, whilst also thinking, Oh, that's not right. Oh, I don't, I don't believe that. Oh, and I don't mean the factual things because it's you know, it's, it's based on reality, it's not supposed to be a story, a documentary, like you say. For example, the speech outside stage door when she says, My son died and he never saw a tit, that you know, that kind of thing doesn't I don't believe that happened. Um, I think that Mrs. Henderson did pull strings and use her contacts and whatever to get. The theatre up and running. Her relationship with, with the Lord Chamberlain as in Christopher Guest is, is interesting. Is a key thing yeah. yeah. I mean actually I think my, my favourite thing about the film, I do like performances. I, I, I always like Judi Dench. Um, I always like Bob Hoskins. Um, Christopher Guest almost steals the film for me. His performance is absolutely fantastic. The scene when they, um, again, completely fantasised scene of setting up a a little Maharaja tent in the St James's Park I don't think that happened but I do like that scene I like the kind I like the dynamic between it's them That's nice, yeah, uh, nice give me some positives about the film um, well I'm, I'm a huge huge fan of Christopher Guest uh, and, and all his films Judy Dench is
2: always magnificent Bob Hoskins even though he's you know the accent thing is, is kind of crazy just always convinces he just never lets go I've got a very simple thing with actors even though I, I am an actor if, um, if, if I believe what's coming out of your mouth then that's great that's, that's all you need to do you know so the main characters uh, actually give really good performances, even though I think you know Bob Hoskins is, is crazily miscast in it. Um, and I think it's a good example of how you can be too close to something, especially if you're producing it it's your baby, yada yada. Will Young is—I um, remember at the time actually that um, the, the critics were like mad for Will Young in the movie, like, it was, like they were really surprised he was really, really good. And he is—he is—you know—okay. Um, he is okay. In fact, he does a very good job, I suppose. It's not his fault that he's singing all these songs, you know, and, 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 um, and actually his character's not terribly, terribly well-developed,
0: isn't it? We're not quite sure what he's all about. I think he's a composite, isn't he, of real people as well. I don't think, I think there were various people, key people who were the choreographers and musical directors and stuff at the at the windmill, and I think he's all three or four of them combined. Um.
2: What, what I do like about the film, Dom, is, um, uh, is obviously it's about Soho. It's a completely Soho story. It's a great Soho story. I did wonder on a few occasions whether, in fact, there was enough of a story to, to make a, a big feature film. Um, but in the end, because I'm such a Sohoite and such a, a fan and supporter and lover of Soho, I kind of, like, push that way to one side and said, screw it, you know. It's, it's a great Soho story. I'm, I mean, frankly, I, I mean, let's not muck about it. The, the, has there ever been a British film industry? I'm not quite sure. Um, we've got studios that we've had. Um, and we had the quota system back in the forties and stuff. But I'm not sure we've ever had a proper film industry. But if we did, um, it was here. It was based in Soho. This was the centre of the, the epicentre of the British film industry. Getting any British film made, even back then, what was it, 2005 or something, uh, is a triumph, frankly. So I applaud it for that. Secondly, it's about you know one of the most important areas in my life, Soho, and it's telling a great story. So um, those are for me are the three key positives. It's a British film.
0: It's about an area I love, and and it's a good story about an an area I love. Peter Bradshaw describes it as an insidiously ghastly piece of blitz, kitsch nostalgia, reeking with chirpiness, which... And he also goes on to say
2: that it's like... um, It was written by Dennis Potter with a lobotomy, which I thought was quite funny. Yeah, yeah. But actually, I agreed with him um, a lot of what he said, not all of it, and I actually thought it was very harsh, quite bitchy, some of the comments.
0: It does seem quite harsh. Uh, I mean, I think if you're a critic, like you were saying before you are affected by the mood you're in. But what, what critics have to do is then write it down. So I think Mark Kermode often talks about, I've revisited this film and actually I've changed my mind. Mm, mm. Which I think is quite a good thing to do. Very good, know. very good. But the, the problem is it's, it's in print. You it's know. there forever. Yeah, yeah mm. which is a shame. And there was... Um, what else did I know? This is also from Peter Bradshaw. This is referring to the speech outside stage door when Mrs. Henderson says my son died in the Great War and uh, he never saw uh, a naked woman. So Peter Bradshaw says, the sheer misjudged awfulness of invoking the fallen of the Great War in support of cheerful smut, the vulgarly ersatz compassion among heritage style suffering on the home front, it made me want to burn my ration card. That's quite extreme. That's you know, extreme. That's um, a bit much. That's a bit. I, mean, I also don't like the use of the word
2: smart. What's smart? I mean, well, you're making a moral judgment about something there. You know, critique the film. But I don't need your moral judgment. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. It. And um, it wasn't
2: smart anyway. That's the whole point. The Lord Chamberlain would never have allowed it to be smart. I mean, define smart anyway, of course, define any word. But it wasn't. It was extremely artistic. It had to be. And it, you know, and it pushed Vivian Van Damme to be. You know, Extremely creative but i 'm sure some people would, would, would think of it as that I think it behoves us um, generally in life, let alone about art and stuff, to, to try and be as balanced as we can i mean also i 've got no time for people that don 't come off the fence, say what you be, feel you know what you think, what you mean, be authentic um, and as i say i 've given you three you know, key big positives about the film, and there are loads of others. If we dig down, look the, cost, the, the wardrobe and costumes are superb it 's delight, delightfully photographed um, um, uh, george fenton 's uh, a fantastic composer. Um, and some of the songs, are, uh, a couple of the songs anyway, are really, really catchy. Um, and I think the period detail that they go into, into the film generally in terms of set design, etc., um, is terrific and it's really evocative. There's some lovely scenes when, when um, uh, Judy Dench's Laura Henderson, Mrs. Henderson um, uh, breaks down on the lake after a funeral, funeral of, um, of her husband. Uh, and she's held it in at the funeral, been done that whole you know, upper-class repressed British thing. And she, you know, gets in a rowing boat and, and rows into the middle of a lake and just let, lets out a primal scream. That's beautiful. That's very moving, yeah. And it's really well handled by Frears. And, that, and Frears is a great director. One of the things that disappointed me about Mrs Henderson um, was that um, I don't think the script or the stylization or whatever allowed for us to really delve into the
0: relationships, and that's something Frears is brilliant at. Yeah, if I didn't know who directed this, I would never have guessed it was Stephen Frears. Absolutely. What was he going for, and what did he not get in going for that? Because, like you say, he's very good on relationships. For me, the key story of The Windmill is the relationship between the two key characters, Miss Henderson and Van Damme. You know, either one of them by themselves, I don't think could have, done, could have achieved that. I'm talking about the real-life people now. It was that time, it was that place, it was those two individuals that made it possible and I don't feel that that central relationship was properly explored or explained. And It was a little bit clunky, this idea that she was in love with him secretly didn't work for me. No, I think you're right. Was he just going for a kind of end of the pier kind of bit of nostalgia? And not think about the relationships, or did he think about the relationships, but not just not get it right? I, I, I tell you what, I, uh, you know, I,
2: I'd pay a few quid to, to find out from Frears how much of um, the vision for this film was actually his. I get the feeling—this is just a guess—but I get the feeling that actually the, the stylized nature of the film w- was um, set in place and decided by people other than him, or before he got there, or he wasn't um, didn't have enough control at that time. I'm not quite sure. Where he was in terms of heat and flavor in his career at that stage but it doesn't feel like a stephen Frears film now that's not in, a, in you know necessarily a bad thing you know great directors will you know provide us with films that um, are unlike i mean you know we're talking about School stage before we started and you know talk about an eclectic range of films it's ridiculous but this didn't feel like it had the courage of anyone's convictions and i think whenever that happens in a
0: performance in a film in a producer's vision or a director's vision that the, the film is bound to fail. It sounds like you think he was trying to pick up somebody else's idea of the vision and not mm. quite running with it properly. And... Yeah, exactly. That's really well put, yeah. I wonder if Bob Hoskins went to Stephen Freyers and said, you're my favorite director, will you do my film? That's uh, Possibly. i pay, I'd not be charged for, to do my Bob Hoskins
2: impression. And... I, I'm not quite sure how much you get. No. Um, <laughs> with the greatest respect on. Just getting back to something you were saying a second ago about um, uh, Van Damme and Henderson's relationship, Mrs Henderson's relationship, that's when it kind of sparks. It, we get a lovely spark when they're having their rows. Their first initial meeting, when um, she, you know, she's very rude and abrupt, uh, and he walks out, and he doesn't want to know, and he's walking out. And you know, the fact that, you know, it certainly as she's portrayed in, in the film, you, she wanted someone to stand up to her and, and with a bit of spunk and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's really great, and when that happens and they have their rounds, it's, really, it's, it's super. But as you say, it's never developed, we don't go into it. Everything seems to be very superficial and quick and flashing past, and that's so anti freeze, it's so anti freeze, it's really weird, really weird. It's really weird though, Don, because it's not like, it's not a shit film, if you part pardon my French, it's, really, it's not crap film, far from it. You know, there's, there's a, a lot of positives to it, no doubt, no doubt. Um, you know a lot of the girls um actually who play the windmill girls are terrific kelly kelly riley is, is super i'm not sure i bought the sort of you know, the romantic relationship with the with a young soldier um, but still you know when she finds out that she's pregnant and he's got a girlfriend and she goes outside and you know, it, it it is very touching it's almost like it, it teases you the film it makes you think it's about to do this do that and you're about to go on a fantastic journey and then it, it stops and takes a few steps back into the, the realms of superficiality and stylization. So what did you want to see that it didn't give you? And that's a really good question. For me, one of the key problems with the, with the movie is you either make it a musical or a film. And as I say, it got caught between a rock and a hard place. So I would have preferred to see it as a film. Could have done it as a musical and gone the whole hog and had, you know, a proper musical film, you know. Uh, MGM-50 style, you know. But um, for me, the characters are so great, especially the relationship between... Um, the three main protagonists, uh, Mrs. Henderson, Van Damme, and the Lord Chamberlain. Um, Three great relationships, and I think you really could have mined that. And then also, I think, actually, you could have really mined um, some of the Wimmore girls themselves and explored their lives more. You know, we've just got little teasers. Kelly Riley says at one point, um, I don't want to go back to working in my dad's chemist or something. And it's like, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, And the girl who kind of breaks down when she's told to disrobe, and he doesn't want to do it, and the girls are sat down, sat downstairs under the stage without having a chat about the difficulty of taking their clothes off in public and stuff. That's interesting. We, you know, we could have got into that. You know, what was it like? Very brave, by the way, of Bob Hoskins to go his tackle out. I mean, yeah. you need a full frontal nudid, 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 nude shot of him in the auditorium, which yeah. is actually a great a great moment, another great moment.
0: Did you get your kit off, wouldn't you, so therefore?
2: I so would not, Don. I so <laughs> would not. I don't think I need to inflict the, my body on the public.
0: Um, I think I would have liked to have seen a little bit more about the uh, about about the theatre about the venue about how it ran one of my bugbears about as an ex-stage manager of of films about shows they always go um, hey let's do the show here and then suddenly there's a full set and lighting no that takes weeks to get that right
2: they gave gave us a little flavour of that which I did appreciate as a theatre man myself They they were auditioning some of the girls some of the girls who were singing, I think, and Toby Jones and the other dude that's with him are on stage, and they're doing something crappy. I think they might have been preparing the guys who come on and do the sand dance. Um, But I I appreciated that. You know, know, the the chaos that that we know can be, like, teching or auditioning on stage in a theatre. There is a lot of attention to detail in the movie. There's loads, there's absolutely loads, and I really
0: appreciate that. It just never sort of spends enough time on it. I get the impression that you want to like it more than you do. I, I want to like it more than I do. And I don't, I don't dislike it. I feel quite warmer towards it because it, I feel like it's done with love and I feel like it's done with a, a sense of appreciation for what the windmill was and for the people who did it. I just think it, they don't quite get it right.
2: I wonder and, if there's too much of that though, Do yeah, I think that's possibly, part of the yeah. problem. I think there's, there's yeah what really sent
0: good. into kitsch and nostalgia and sentimentality. Yeah,
2: and it, and it is it is um, it is very kitsch and it is um, you know overly really overly sentimental. It's a it's a strange one really because it's um it's 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 such a British film and yet it's not such a British film and it's made by a director who doesn't you know who's sort of. Um, portfolio is, isn't filmed with filled with, filled with your, the normal British films he's such a, an exciting interesting risky risk-taking director for is it's I, I think it's a real anomaly in in loads of ways um, and like you I definitely wanted to like it more for all the reasons I've said I really wanted to like it you know I'm definitely not here or anywhere to you know, slag it off but the, the question is always would you recommend it Would you recommend it to someone? How much would you recommend it to someone?
0: Is there any circumstance in which you would recommend it?
2: Oh, definitely. There's there's loads. I mean, I know loads of people who would love that style of film, whether they're cineasts and cinephiles or whether they're people that just love theatre. I know loads of people for whom that would be a fabulous piece of entertainment. But there are also loads of others where I would would, um, preface it by saying, it's Soho, I'm biased, and that's why I watched it and there's loads of things about it I
0: can appreciate because it's Soho and everything I know and feel about Soho. By my reckoning, there are four films about the windmill. There's this, there's a film called Secrets of a Windmill Girl, which we did a few episodes ago, which is a, basically a sexploitation film. came out in '66 after the windmill had shut down. There's a film called Murder at the Windmill from 1949, I think it is, which we're doing next week, which is set in the windmill and Van Damme appears in it played by somebody else he apparently failed his audition to play himself no way <laughs> um and there's a film called tonight and every night which is a Rita hayworth film oh yeah i've read about uh, that yeah yeah have you seen any you've seen the Rita hayworth not, film i've not there, seen any it? of the films you're talking about because yeah. you, you mentioned before a sort of mgm glitzy musical and i thought i wonder if you you were referring to the the Rita hayworth no i was yeah, reading film. about
2: it last night yeah you sent me through, through some great material and i was reading about it last night and that was very interesting
0: uh, and that's a terrible film is it really yeah yeah, yeah. You were talking before about wanting there to be a brilliant Soho film. I mean, I would say that Sammy Lee is a brilliant Soho film. That's, I think that's... that's a it. That's lot of people do. Most people in do. In my top five films, I think. Of, but sort of Soho or of all time? Of all time. Wow. Yeah, I, really, I think it's a fantastic film. Wow. But I don't think of those four windmill films, um, and by t- two episodes from now we'll have done all four of them on the, on the programme, I don't think there's a great windmill film. So I think there is still room for a great film about the windmill, but I just don't know Definitely. if there's a. I don't... I mean, I I, 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 you know, we, we, we
2: do have a difference sort of opinion over um, Small World of Sammy Lee in, in that it's got Anthony Newley, one of the finest British performers. I mean, a creative polymath, absolutely extraordinary. My appreciation of um, Anthony Newley, Newley started at a very, very young age. It's amazing. So you've got, it's got Anthony Newley, he has got all the period stuff, it's just it's, it's got Soho... Bleeding all the way through It's wonderful But for me I don't think There's been a really good Soho film We had the Steve Coogan one Recently There's others that I haven't seen Which you know Espresso I mean, Bongo Actually I mean A very important film Obviously because it talks about a, a massively important part Of Soho's history Which is This is where the birth Of British rock and roll Started Very important again To keep that alive That's a massively important Part of British history Not just Soho history But um, Kenneth, you know, they, they, I don't think Many of these films Really truly stand The
0: test of time If I'm really honest Okay That's interesting so all in all, if it's Christmas Day, you've had your turkey, would you sit down and watch Mrs. Henderson present on the telly with the rest of the family?
2: God, you've really set me up there, haven't you? Oh, blimey. Um, look, if there, <laughs> this is going to be a really backhanded compliment. If it was that setting, if my um, partner or girlfriend, uh, and I'm still single girls, but if, if my partner or girlfriend would really wanted to watch it and therefore there was no choice, of course I'd watch it. <laughs> of course i'd watch it but that's not much that's not saying much is it really no, it's
0: not a lot, no. that's sad. tell
2: you what let's let's be absolutely clear and be balanced about this because it's really important um, that one expresses oneself clearly it's um it's not a crap film it's not an embarrassing film uh, and i think for um, a lot of people um, it's a really super light frothy totally british entertainment of a movie with songs dancing a little bit of end of the pier sauciness some terrific performances from a couple of the world's finest actors it's got an incredible screenwriter it's got an incredible pedigree it's just a personal opinion there's a lot to it
0: but you would hope for more from from that subject matter and that group of people you'd expect yeah so but, you know, more for your but you
2: know what don that's difficulty. my issue isn't it that's my issue so I, I should probably take myself outside and have a jolly good word with myself
0: so not mike warburton's favorite film but i think i do detect some residual affection for it thank you to mike for coming on the show if you'd like to follow him on twitter he's prolifically tweeting at the moment mostly about film and soho and his handle is at mike warburton after we finished talking about the film i asked mike if there's anything else he'd like to add and as it turned out there was soho is is a truly amazing
2: place I believe it is the, the soul of London and the conscience of London, which kind of sounds, it might be, sound a bizarre thing to say in terms of conscience because obviously it's had this reputation, and rightly so, for being a, um, a pleasure dome, a place of excess, seasiness, sex, you name it. But it's a very, very special place. There's no other place like it in London. There's no other place like it in the UK. There aren't many places like it in the world in cities. I truly, genuinely believe that. You know, whether you come here uh, as, a, as a priest or a pervert, the whole point about Soho, or both, very often the case, but you know, one of the great things about Soho is you come here to be whatever you want to be. And that's a very special thing. So you can come here and be what you want to be. And that's really, really important. And that's one of the things that just strangely makes this square mile. It's very strange, I don't know how it's come to be, but it's a special place and we need to protect it. We need to hang on to it because like anything, once it's gone, it ain't coming back. So if you like Soho, if you've ever been to Soho and have a damn good night out, or a few damn good nights out, even if you don't come here very often, unless we all get together, get together and kind of give a toss about Soho fairly soon, there ain't going to be a Soho to come to anymore. There's just going to be a bland, beige, globalised, corporatised version of Soho, a Disneyland version of Soho. And none of us want that.
0: Here, here. Thanks again to Jill and Mike for coming on. And as ever, please head over to SohoBytesPodcast.com to find out more about them and all the guests who have featured in the show so far. And as usual, thank you again to Tony Shrimplin from the Museum of Soho, who introduced me to Jill and who has been an ongoing tower of support for the podcast. Check out the museum's website at mosoho.org.uk and follow them on Twitter on at the Museum of Soho. In the next episode, Jill Millard Shapiro is back and talks about how, as plain old Jill Millard, she started working at the windmill. I'm also joined by Dr. Ellen Wright to talk about Murder at the Windmill. That's the name of a film, not a horrible phenomena. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Soho Bites on your favourite podcast provider. There's a handy subscribe button at SohoBitesPodcast.com. And if you have time to leave a nice review, that would be very much appreciated. I'm always keen to hear suggestions for Soho-related features or films to talk about. And you can tweet the show with your ideas on at Soho or email us on Sohobytespodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bytes is produced by me, Dom Delagi, and it's based on an original idea by Dr. Jingen Young. You can follow Jingen and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. That's it for now. Until next time, bye for now.